0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, we have two big research review segments. In the first one, we look at the idea of P ratios. It's commonly said that you should get lean before you do a muscle gaining phase. The idea is if you get leaner, you'll become more insulin sensitive. This will increase your P ratio and potentiate the hypertrophy that you achieve during the subsequent muscle gaining phase. In the research review segment, we look at all the evidence for and against that concept. After that, Greg does a research review segment all about the concept of ischemic preconditioning. After that, we do a quick Q&A segment where we talk about a few very applied, very practical questions, and that wraps up the episode, which is the final episode of Season 3. So we are going to take a little break after this episode, but we will be back better than ever. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode, and we'll be back soon welcome back to the stronger by science podcast this is your one and only host Eric Trexler but today I am going to be joined by a special temporary guest co-host his name is Greg knuckles Greg thank you for joining me today
1: yeah thanks for having me I uh, I-, I was surprised and delighted
0: by the invite absolutely well last time you did a great job I got a lot of really good uh, really good fan mail and, and so I said hey we'll-, we'll bring him back again and see if uh, see if we can recreate that that lightning in a bottle so yeah um, we'll see how it goes. Um, now this is going to be our last episode of the season. Uh, we're going to be taking some time off, uh, you know, a little bit of a break and then focusing on getting some written content done. So that's going to be cool. Rest assured. We are going to be working very hard for the stronger by science audience, making sure we get some stuff put together. Um, so yeah, uh, hopefully this will be a good episode. We'll take a little break and then we'll be back. Um, Before we get into the content and the good news and stuff today, uh, I do want to do, it's not a selling out segment because in a way it's almost the inverse because I'm going to plug a supplement company that we don't make money from. So taking money out of our own pockets, obviously we financially have hitched our wagon to bulk supplements.com. You go there for your supplement needs and uh, what's the code SBS pod and you get a discount there. Uh, but I have to give a shout out to elemental formulations who, uh, we don't make any money from them, which is honestly criminal, but, uh, but I'm on the advisory board there and, and they just, uh, they just got rolling uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, and so that's, uh, that's Omar, Omar Essoff and, uh, Ben Esgro, that's their new supplement company. And this morning I got a package in the mail. It was a product called Utopia and it was really good timing. Um, You know, So I I spent the entire morning reading about a bunch of stuff I don't fully understand, and that usually scrambles my brain and and puts me in a position where I'm unable to speak and sound like I'm lucid and alert. So uh, Utopia, it's their product that's, you know, it's kind of like a nootropic. uh, It's got some caffeine in there and all that stuff. So uh, if I sound... uh, Conversational in this episode, th- then I think they deserve a little bit of credit. Um, if this is just our worst episode ever, and and I just sound like a complete dumbass, then shame on them. Honestly, shame on them. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding, but but it's it's a, a really cool company, and I've been offered. You know, people have asked me to be on uh, the advisory board for supplement companies, and I've I've always said no up to this point. But uh, but they're good dudes. Ben is a terrific formulator. Omar's fine. I like him. And uh, and what it, it,
1: what a ringing endorsement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, o- Omar and I just we just constantly <laughs> give each other a hard time. But no, our, Omar's great. And and I really like. They have a bunch of third party testing stuff on their site. You can like look into the um you know the the quality and, and purity of the product. So it's good stuff. So uh, giving them a little shout out. Um, and now moving on to some good news. Okay, so. Uh this is kind of a bunch of personal good news this uh this week. I feel like, you know, the whole rest of the world whatever, man. It's it's all about us today. Um so personal good news. First of all, we've added some really awesome new coaches to the Stronger by Science team recently. So Stronger by Science, we have a whole team of coaches, uh really really excellent people. We've added a few uh recently. So not long ago we added melissa Wen. she was actually our first intern at stronger by science Uh, she's a registered dietitian really fantastic so we're super excited about having her on the team and then even more recently we added two new coaches within the last few weeks Uh, one was stephen mack Um, he is a really really experienced personal trainer Uh, Played football at Missouri. Um, When he was there, he was training under Brian Mann and Pat Ivey, who really know their stuff. Uh, So we're stoked to have him on board. We also got Colby Souza, who has kind of been trained under the tutelage uh, of our, our dear friends, the good doctors, Mike Zordos and Eric Helms. So Colby's down in New Zealand right now. Working on his PhD with Helms uh, knows a ton of stuff about powerlifting and bodybuilding, so you know we're stoked. The, the team has gotten better in the last couple months. Uh, other good news, personally, uh, my 2000 what year is it? 2021, I think so. Yeah my my habits so far. We talked about those last episode. Uh, they're going well, honestly. Uh, sleep habits have been way better. Uh, I am a little bit over caffeinated today. I'll admit that was a slip up my bad um you know I, I don't think the instructions for utopia said you know drink a pot of coffee and then take it um so so that that is my mistake but but pretty doing a pretty good job so far not staying up super late uh and, and doing all the good things exercising a little bit more regularly so good stuff there uh, what about you greg any good news uh,
1: yes but i i want to tell a quick story um Fair re- enough. related to getting a new supplement and maybe taking a little bit too much of it. So uh, way, way back in the day, um, I'm not going to name names in this story, but uh, I I was working at a gym uh, and they wanted to put together some supplements. Um, And so I and they entrusted that to me. Probably not the best call. Uh, But basically, I just went on examine.com and (laughs) and checked out uh, the human effect matrix for a lot of the like more common things that might be marketed as uh, as like fat burner supplements. One of them was a fat burner. Um, And so, you know, obviously, it's going to be primarily caffeine based uh, because, you know, it it can elevate metabolic rate to some degree, uh, suppress appetite a little bit. Uh, So I mean, basically, it was caffeine and some other stuff. Um, And uh, we so like, we we got labels printed for the bottle and everything. Uh, We had scoops included for the uh, recommended dosage. And the recommended dosage was really, really small. It was a really small bottle. um, And the recommended dose was like, it was like either a quarter teaspoon or an eighth of a teaspoon. It wasn't much. Uh, and that was going to give you like 300 milligrams of caffeine, uh, and so anyway, the uh, the shipment comes in, like the bottles arrive at the gym, and uh, one of the folks was like, "Oh man, fat burner, there's a lot of stimulants in this, right?" And I was like, "Yep." Uh, and they were like, "Would this work as a pre-workout?" And I said, "Ah, yeah, I mean, if I was trying to make a pre-workout, there there would be some other things in there that that aren't in there, but." I mean, if you're looking for a stimulant, it's a stimulant. And they were like, okay, awesome, sweet. Uh, And so (laughs) before I could say anything, um, they just like opened it up. There was like a smoothie bar at the gym. Uh, They grabbed like a plastic spoon that would be like given with a smoothie and uh, just like took a scoop with the plastic spoon and I think put about as much powder in their mouth as they would typically use with like most pre-workouts on the market. Um, which just eyeballing it was probably five of the recommended dosages of this product. Uh, So we're talking probably about a gram and a half of caffeine. Um, And so, you know, caffeine takes somewhere between like 30 minutes and an hour and a half to to really kick in. Um, And so, you know, they, they started warming up and like 30 minutes after ingesting it, They were bouncing off the walls uh, and actually had a fantastic workout, hit some PRs, hit some big numbers, Um, very, very hyper, very loud, hyping up everyone else in the weight room. Uh, And then uh, just like all of a sudden, everyone kind of realized like, man, the weight room has gone eerily silent. Um, (laughs) And uh, it was because the person who had been bringing all of the energy up to that point Was now nowhere to be found, Um, and basically we uh, we looked for them a little bit, uh, found them curled up uh, under a table in the office, uh, and uh, just in very very bad shape. Um, (laughs) And uh, so I I, my first thought was like, oh shit, like do we need to call an ambulance? Uh, And then like I did some googling to see like how much caffeine would be lethal um and like they were well below that dosage uh so i was just like well you're just gonna have to ride this one out uh but they were just like laying there shivering with like cold sweat pouring down their face in very very bad shape um and anyway i thought that was uh it it was it was Originally terrifying before I knew how much caffeine it took to actually kill a person. Uh, And then in hindsight, it it turned out to be something pretty funny. Uh, All of which is, and and they were fine, by the way. All of which is to say, the moral of that story is uh, yeah, too much caffeine sometimes has bad effects.
0: Yeah. Well, see, I I had taken this product before, Utopia, that I took this morning, and uh, I loved it. I got a couple tubs of it way back in the day, Uh, it was years ago. And, uh, so, so I knew what to expect, but I forgot that it does pack a bit, a bit of a punch. So like, you're not supposed to drink a ton of coffee and then, and then take it. Mm-hmm. But like, I drank all my coffee this morning and then it arrived in the mail and I was just too excited. So, <laughs> so I, I, I knew that I was like, Yeah, I shouldn't have had that coffee and this, but, uh, but here we are. And, uh, I don't have any regrets. I'm doubling down on my decisions. No, fair enough. All right. So, uh, what's your good news?
1: Uh, so my good news is uh, something fairly minor, but next week uh, I'm taking my first break in close to a year and a half. So October 2019, I took uh, about a week mostly off of work, uh, and since then, I don't think I've taken more than a day off of work, uh, and I'm pretty sure the only times I took a day off of work were Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, as we've talked about on the podcast before, we do not condone poor work-life balance, but I, at least speaking for myself, have absolutely terrible work-life balance. Um, but yeah, next week, uh, going to finally get a chance to chill out, unplug a little bit, uh, spend some quality time with my wife. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to that. Uh, and I think that will be good.
0: All right, good stuff. So how about some feats of strength?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Um, So I have two this time around, uh, and these are two recurring feats of strength people. Um, So as consistent listeners know by now, uh, the feats of strength segment is partially the Julius Maddox watch segment. Uh, Julius Maddox, quite famously, is on a quest to become the first 800-pound bencher, uh, and some of his recent training lifts in his current training cycle uh, include benching 710 for a triple, that's 322 pounds, uh, and 650 for a set of 7, uh, or, or 322 kilos, that's 710, uh, and 650 for 7, that's 295 kilos for 7 reps, and, uh, I I don't need to add commentary for that. Those are just absolutely batshit crazy bench numbers. Um, He is ahead of where he was at this point in his last bench cycle, um, where if memory serves, he took a pretty solid crack at 800 and missed. Um, I mean, I never bet against him at this point. Uh, I I fully anticipate 800 is going to fall in 2021. Uh, and I'm really, really looking forward to it. He is unsurprisingly looking strong as fuck. Uh, and second, uh, Zhu Rin, uh, who a lot of people know, know as Yu Yu Rin. Uh, he is a 93 kilo competitor, uh, in the USAPL, uh, and IPF affiliates. He recently posted a, (laughs) just absolutely bonkers training lift, uh, he pulled 905 pounds or about 410 kilos, uh, with straps, uh, on the deadlift. And that is, so just to put that number in perspective. Um, so for me, like I got into powerlifting, uh, at a time when, you know, people from the seventies to nineties still held most of the raw records. Um, and like the number that, Basically, everyone thought would never fall was Ed Cohn's 220 deadlift record. He pulled 903 at 220. Um, and th- that number has since fallen. Uh, but now, you know, obviously, uh, Yang Zuoren pulled this with straps uh, and not in a meet. But I mean, just the fact that a weight class below, uh, he's he's putting up comparable numbers really under any circumstance uh, is just batshit crazy. Um, and that's also just, just outrageous progress for him. I think his best deadlift in a meet, uh, is seven forty nine or 340 kilos, uh, which he did, I think back in 2018, uh, and around a year ago, I think we talked about this on the podcast. He, he pulled his first 800 with straps thereabouts. Um, and now he's up over 900. I have no idea if he'll ever hit a number like that in a meet or, you know, what his grip can take if if he's a grip limited deadlifter. Um, but again, uh, let's just assume that he does put 900 plus up uh, in the... Uh, uh, 93 kilo class, or he uh, he did the lift at a body weight of 196, uh, which is 89 kilos. So it, it would fall under the 198 or 90 kilo class. Uh, so just looking at those numbers, um, this would be the all-time world record uh, for untested powerlifting, and he competes tested. Uh, current world record is 400 kilos or 881 by Kaler Woolham. So Uh, This bests that by uh, about 10 kilos, about uh, 24 pounds. Uh, And it would be 80 pounds ahead of anything that a tested lifter has ever done in the same weight class. Uh, And that's Jesse Norris. He pulled 824 back in 2014, I believe. Uh, After Jesse Norris, the next best a tested lifter has done in that weight class is 771 or 350 kilos. So anyway, I... Man, if we saw if we saw a 900 plus deadlift from uh, Yu Yu Ren in 2021 or even 2022 or just at any point or by anyone in the 198 class, uh, drug free or not, that would be an absolutely momentous lift. Uh, and the fact that a tested lifter, even with straps, is putting that up uh, at that weight class is a enormous leap forward uh, from even just five years ago what I think anyone in the sport expected to see um so great lifting from him uh and you know hopefully when he can get back on the platform again we uh we see some big numbers from him
0: all right good stuff i, I gotta i gotta be honest I'm very much looking forward to uh to tracking Julius Maddox as he approaches 800 i've, I've been looking forward to that you know ever since he took a crack at it last year because it seemed like when we first started doing feats of strength every week, we were just talking about his his newest PR. Um, so, man, when he hits eight hundred, that's gonna be that's gonna be wild. And you got to believe it's gonna be this year, you know. I I, I, I really think it will be. I, I if if I had to to bet on it, I'd say it's it's gonna be twenty twenty one for sure.
1: Yeah, and I mean that's another number as well that just uh, even even five years ago just seemed completely inconceivable because. Uh, uh, Scott Mendelson, when he hit 715 back in the day, uh, fo- like he was far and away ahead of everyone at the time. Uh, he only beat the world record by five pounds. James Henderson had done 710 back in the '90s, uh, but like no one was particularly close to 715 at the time. Uh, and then when Eric Spoto uh, hit 722, folks were like, "Damn, pushing the frontier by seven pounds—that's that's something." uh and then sarachev came up and hit 738 folks were just like jesus christ this guy like 700 seemed like a limit and this guy's pushing into the mid 700s uh beat the old record by what's that 16 pounds like man that's outrageous and now not that far into the future someone's like legitimately knocking on the door of 800 uh like, I don't think anyone really expected to see an 800 raw bench ever. Uh, and now, I mean, I, I think if you're a betting person, uh, you know, your, your odds would be pretty good if you wanted to bet on that number falling in 2021, which is just bonkers to me. Yeah.
0: All right. So moving on, uh, we've got a, an unconventional segment coming up. So in the past, we've done segments where we discuss a Stronger by Science article so we'll write the article, put it on the website, and then kind of talk about some of the chatter. Um, in this case, we're doing it in reverse order, right? we've We've got a break coming up uh, so so we won't be able to discuss this most likely in the immediate aftermath of, of the publication of this article. So it's kind of just talking through the premise of the article and kind of, I don't know, outlining it verbally. Because uh, it's it's not fully formed, you know, it's just kind of like the preliminary observations. But it's a really fascinating topic that has really uh, taken control of my my brain lately. I, I, I kind of keep thinking about it and, and keep going back to it and, uh, and and revisiting the topic and reading more. So the topic is something we've alluded to on the podcast before. So I think it was episode forty nine. We had a question from a listener. And the question was, is, is there an easy way to, to judge if I'm gaining too much fat during a bulk? And in the process of answering that, we talked about this concept of the P-ratio uh, for bulking or for building muscle. And so the P-ratio uh, essentially is the proportion of weight gained that is gained as lean mass. So, you know, the amount of lean mass gained uh, relative to the total amount of weight gained. And so if you have a high P-ratio during a bulk, that means you put on a ton of muscle and minimal body fat. If you have a low P-ratio, then it means you put on a bunch of weight, but very little of it was actually lean tissue. Very little of it was uh, was muscle. And so where this gets interesting is there, there's kind of a a common theory or or hypothesis within the evidence-based lifting community that as your body fat gets higher uh, you become more insulin resistant and so then your muscle cells become less responsive to insulin and that has a has an impact on nutrient partitioning such that nutrients are essentially diverted away from muscle And the result of that, according to this hypothesis, is that if you put on a lot of body fat and you're trying to bulk and your body fat percentage is high, you're going to have a lower P-ratio while bulking. Uh, So for a given amount of weight gain, uh, a relatively smaller proportion of it is going to be muscle tissue or, or lean mass. And the idea is that you can utilize this. So basically, if you do a cut or a mini cut between bulking cycles you can get your body fat lower, you can restore your insulin sensitivity and this would put you in a position where you can actually potentiate hypertrophy in the following bulk or the next muscle gaining phase. So that's kind of the the theory of it and I wrote a mass article last month where I kind of took a deep dive into this topic and even after the mass article has been done, you know, Greg, you and I have been continuing to look deeper and deeper into this evidence and on the front end i don't want it to seem like this is like some vendetta that i have where i'm like like i need to destroy this idea because that's really not the case but i'm just kind of coming at it from a skeptical perspective because like theoretically the null hypothesis would be you can bulk at any body fat level right so the burden of proof would basically be someone's got to convince me that this P-ratio thing really pans out. You know, like, the the, the easiest position to defend is probably doesn't matter.
1: Well, and for me, uh, arguing against this position is uh, very inconvenient and not in my best interest. Because back in, like, 2013, 2014, I wrote an article uh, on what was at the time string theory, now stronger by science, uh, basically arguing for this, that... Uh, you should get lean before you balk for uh, the reasons that are about to be discussed. Like, you know, you're, you're going to have better nutrient partitioning. You're going to gain a larger proportion of lean mass. You'll be able to build muscle faster. Um, so at one time, I did wholeheartedly believe in that idea. I put it out in the world. Uh, the article was well-received, was getting a lot of traffic. Um, so I wish that i could disagree with a lot of the things that eric is about to say uh because i do not particularly like the taste of crow
0: yeah and and that's the thing that's interesting about this this kind of hypothesis is it's been very uh widely accepted within you know our little corner of the evidence-based lifting community and so you know like i said i'm i have no interest in tearing it down like i i don't have to defend any position on this i'm I'm completely unbiased in the approach, um, but I am viewing it from a pretty skeptical perspective. And, and I think I'm I'm finding it harder and harder to justify the hypothesis for reasons we'll get into. But I am open to being talked out of this. Um, so this is just kind of the, the first impressions of taking a, a deep dive into this concept. So my knee-jerk reaction to this concept as somebody with no position to defend, no bias, no skin in the game, was... This concept doesn't really feel right to me, which uh, that's not going to be the extent of the evidence we discuss. (laughs) We'll get into deeper stuff, but you know, we've we've talked about you know the, the dreamer bulk, right? Just going for it, eating everything, lifting like crazy, and I've heard a lot of people who have some regret about a dreamer bulk, but the one regret I've never heard, like people say, oh. I felt like crap. I couldn't get up a flight of stairs without getting winded. Uh, I put on way too much fat that I didn't need to gain. But the one thing I've never, ever heard in my life is I didn't get big and strong during it. Like, that that's the one thing I've never heard after a dreamer bulk. And theoretically, if something is messing with your P-ratio during a bulk, effectively what that means is it's impairing muscle gain, right? Like, I mean, we I don't think anyone's suggesting that this fat gain is kind of appearing out of nowhere completely separate from energy balance it's you you put in a bunch of energy and very little muscle was built in the process right so i i think it's fair to say that an impaired p ratio during a bulk is essentially an impairment of muscle hypertrophy right yeah. is that fair
1: yeah or 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 at the very least it would imply that to achieve the same rate of muscle hypertrophy you would have to gain you would have to gain weight dramatically faster and put on dramatically more fat for the same hypertrophic outcome. Yeah. So uh, in, in, in a given period of time.
0: Right. So there are other reasons why this just didn't really feel right to me. Um, so I come at this, you know, a lot of my work as a grad student, I, I did, you know, some papers about weight regain, you know, so uh, looking at after someone gets pretty shredded, and then they start regaining weight after that. What what happens? What does that body composition look like in the weight regain period? And when you look at the weight regain literature, which is how this concept is being utilized, people are saying you should cut then bulk. That's weight regain, you know. Usually in that literature, and those these researchers don't give a damn about bulking, you know, so they're coming from a totally different perspective. What we're trying to do there is like P ratios get worse, in, in weight regain. Like, th- there's really one of two options when you look at the weight regain literature. Uh, you know, if you look at physique athletes, w- which we did with some research, uh, the P-ratio is awful after a, a bodybuilding competition. Uh, there, there's very preferential regain of fat. And then when you look at people who are untrained, who are, you know, trying to get to a healthier BMI maybe, right? Uh, get to a lower BMI in untrained folks who have a BMI over, you know, 30 and, and, and above. And what we'll see is if, if they have really substantial weight loss, their P-ratio might get worse. If it's minor weight loss, their P-ratio probably won't be affected, but we do not see a consistent effect where people lose weight and then have an improved P-ratio when they start re- uh, gaining weight after that. So for me, I'm like, wait a minute, I, my, my kind of frame of reference for this is completely inverted because I'm coming at it from, from the weight regain literature. Another reason it didn't make sense to me is, you know, if we are assuming that there's some degree of, you know, if having high body fat makes muscle building an uphill battle, it's hard to reconcile that with the fact that a lot of the the athletes with the highest fat-free mass index on the planet, they, they have high body fat. Like, that, that's a pretty consistent observation. Um, and another thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about this is... And this isn't strong evidence, but it's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction, which is like, we've been here before, you know. The, these theories about nutrient partitioning that are built on a mechanistic understanding of insulin in one tissue. This essentially is the carb-insulin model of obesity revisited, right? So the whole idea: why do people get obese? It's because we eat carbs. Insulin goes up. It drives fat in, uh, drives calories into fat cells the lean tissues and circulation, all those nutrients go down. And there's this kind of starvation response begging for more nutrients to come into the system. So like, I I get really nervous about extrapolating these insulin mechanisms and assuming that there are no other factors at play, right? So that's the starting point. But I think before we talk about, you know, the actual evidence uh, for or against it, we should figure out where this idea came from in the first place. And I think with this hypothesis, it's, it's really informative, really instructive. So by all accounts I can find, the real impetus for this idea goes back to a paper by Forbes. And uh, he published a couple of review papers kind of establishing this concept that it, it, if you overfeed people, people who had low body fat at the time at the beginning of that overfeeding, they tend to gain more lean mass proportionally. Uh, and then people who had a lot of body fat at the at the time of that overfeeding, they don't seem to gain really much lean mass at all w- when they're overfed. And so he kind of plotted this curve. And there's this classic figure that you see all over the place on the internet. And one of the things that strikes me about this figure, and this is not a, a criticism of Forbes necessarily, but Greg, this figure is hard to interpret. Like, if you look at it, there's five points on the figure. But if you look at the, and these are, I guess, aggregated mean values, but there's five points on the figure, but there are several studies that are cited uh, in the caption of the figure. So I'm still not 100% certain exactly what studies these data points came from Mm -hmm. and how they were grouped together and aggregated. But what I can tell you for certain is that Several of uh, of the uh, data points going into this figure, the, the studies contributing data to the analysis, were done in people who are recovering from anorexia, um, and so we're talking about overfeeding in a group of people who have severe, clinically relevant atrophy of lean tissues. So there is uh, a fairly atypical compared to the the general population. Uh, there's a major stimulus there for the accretion of lean tissue. It is literally a matter of life and death, right? Like there, there is a reason for lean tissue to be added there. So that's one of the things that, that jumped out. And another study that gets cited there as potentially contributing data to the figure.
1: Oh, and if, if I can just, uh, toss something in real quick, just to clear up a point of potential confusion. Sure. Uh, there's a reasonably well-known contemporary, uh, sports nutrition researcher named Scott Forbes. Uh, don't address questions about this paper to no. him. Uh, this, this is an older paper by a researcher named Gilbert Forbes. Yes. So just making sure that's clear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Don't, uh, you know, pester poor Scott about this. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, another study that appears to have contributed data for, for this particular figure uh, was done in, like, a really extreme weight loss intervention where the term they used was total starvation. And, like, they had people losing 50, 60 kilograms and then observing the refeeding stage. And like I said, I mean, if you're losing 50, 60 kilograms, based on what we know in the weight regain literature, you're probably going to have a terrible P-ratio in, in terms of that weight regain uh, if if all uh, all other factors are held constant. So, it. Looking at this figure, I think the thing that jumps out to me, um, and I should note that Kevin Hall did a a kind of revisited approach to this data with with similar models, but the the main things that jump out from the Forbes paper and the Kevin Hall paper, who are both great researchers, by the way, this is not uh, being critical of them, but there are several instances of data coming from people who are recovering from anorexia or coming out of these really extreme weight loss interventions, but most importantly... There is no data coming from people who lift weights, and for me, I'm thinking, you know, the the main driver of what kind of tissue we gain during a bulk is what's the training stimulus, and so so to be extrapolating data from people who are not doing any exercise whatsoever is a huge leap.
1: Yeah, and I mean you're dealing with different starting points as well. Like if uh, if someone's either anorexic or they've uh, just gone on a total starvation diet. Odds are pretty decent that they've lost way, way more lean mass in the process than someone who has had a consistent resistance training stimulus as they've been gradually and hopefully safely taking weight off. Uh, so yeah, the, the process of overfeeding is different. Overfeeding with a training stimulus and or er, overfeeding without a training stimulus, not the same thing. And, and the point you're starting at, the physiological starting point prior to the overfeeding also very, very different than you know what most people listening to this podcast probably have in mind when they talk about bulk.
0: Yeah, and a- another thing that comes into play with these models is that they are completely cross-sectional in nature. So they they are not indicating, hey, you can kind of slide your way up and down this curve by manipulating your body composition and then bulking. This is just saying like hey if we bring in somebody who has 35 percent body fat and then we overfeed them without resistance training they don't seem to gain a lot of lean mass and i don't know why they would uh is kind of the the first concern there but but also uh you wonder these people who at baseline happen to have you know higher body fat levels is it potentially some intrinsic thing about their physiology where you know they have higher body fat levels because they are indeed more likely to gain fat when overfed. I mean, that, that kind of is the process of developing obesity, right? Mm-hmm. So with these cross-sectional types of approaches, it's hard to separate that and also hard to justify that this will ne- necessarily pan out in a longitudinal sense. Um, and another thing you'll notice with these models is that the, the relationship is not linear. It's far from it. When you look at the models, especially from the Kevin Hall paper, the beginning of the curve is like vertical and then it gets very, very, very flat. And so what you'll see, and, and, and by the way, the, the curve isn't like a perfect fit. And so like there's a great uh, a, a great figure from the Kevin Hall paper looking at weight gain and from, from two people who both have, you know, 10 or 15 kilograms of fat mass at the beginning of, of the overfeeding period. It literally their P ratios span from as high as the P ratios get in the entire collection of data to almost as low as they get in the entire collection of data. So if you just said like, well, hey, if if I'm starting this with 12 kilograms of fat mass, how am I going to do? You'd say you will either have approximately the highest or approximately the lowest P ratio or somewhere in between.
1: Yeah. And and just to put numbers on that, like Uh, it it ranges from somewhere just below 0.8 to somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.2. So basically that's saying like, oh yeah, if you're starting with 12 kilos of fat mass and you're going to gain 10 kilos of body weight, how much of that is going to be muscle somewhere between two and eight kilos? Um, which like you said, that's, uh, that's quite
0: the range and and it's just not actionable, you know, like there's not much we can do with that. And from my perspective, looking at the way that these data kind of fit this curve, what it basically says is, if you have pretty high body fat already, and you are not engaged in resistance training, and you're intentionally overfeeding, you're probably not going to gain a lot of muscle, and or, or a lot of lean mass. And I, I think that that is a very intuitive thing to uh, to conclude. I mean, there's there's no stimulus there for adding lean mass you know so so th- that's kind of where this thing starts and i think a lot of people have said hey this p ratio relationship it's been shown in several studies you know not super worried about the context i'm sure this pans out just fine for lifters but what we did when we were kind of diving into this mass article is we're like well let's look for some relevant lines of evidence and see if if we kind of test this hypothesis with some different perspectives and approaches does it seem to hold up and so uh, one area that you might go down when you're looking at this uh, this concept is you know do we conclusively know that having higher body fat impairs your muscle protein synthesis response acutely to uh, you know to overfeeding or protein feeding or resistance training and there's a really great review paper by Beals and colleagues that, that looks into this. And if you look at the collection of the, the research in this area, you'll find that people with higher body fat do seem to have a blunted muscle protein synthesis response to acute protein feeding, but they also seem to have lower muscle protein breakdown in those studies. And so the, the overall effect on protein balance doesn't seem to be particularly notable and that kind of pans out because we don't look at people with high body fat percent cuz muscle protein balance is a continuous process you know it's it's always maintaining those lean proteins and the lean protein the proteins of the body right that's people get really nitpicky if you say lean protein or lean muscle or something
1: man getting on a supplement company board has uh (laughs) has already started affecting your
0: linguistic patterns yeah yeah that's that's terrible but i caught myself so i can't be held accountable um (laughs) But, you know, we, we have to continue <laughs> maintaining protein balance. It's a continuous thing. And wh- when we look at people, untrained people, lean versus obese, we don't see, uh, you know, a lack of lean body mass in people with obesity. In, in fact, quite the opposite. It tends to be higher lean body mass. So the the most important thing about that review paper, in my opinion, is that they, they did look at two studies where there was a resistance training component. And without getting too deep into the details, uh, it, it's... Two studies, they go opposite directions. It's it's pretty equivocal. One said, yeah, resistance training with protein, it looks like responses are are blunted in people with higher body fat. The other said it doesn't look like they're blunted. It looks like it's pretty similar. Um, but neither of them were able to pin down uh, a mechanism. You know, so so even the one that that indicated you know, there, there are some blunted, uh, responses when we do the combination of resistance training with protein in people with higher body fat, they looked at all these different potential mechanisms that might contribute and kind of came up short. They said, okay, well, the synthesis rates were lower, but we can't necessarily pin it on any particular aspect of their physiology. Um, so, so that is equivocal at best, that particular line of, of evidence. Um, number two, like I mentioned, um, if if we're going to say that insulin resistance uh, has some kind of inhibitory effect on the accretion of lean mass, you know, the, the two questions would be, you know, for untrained people, do people with obesity tend to have lower lean mass than leaner individuals? And, and the answer is no, we tend to see the opposite, slightly higher amounts of, of lean body mass in people with obesity. Um, And then again, talking about athletes, you know, do we see that uh, at a certain level of body fat percentage that it becomes increasingly difficult to add lean mass? That doesn't really seem to pan out with the cross-sectional literature on which athletes tend to have a ton of fat-free mass. And it doesn't pan out with the fact, I mean, Greg, we've talked about this before, Uh, you know, Offensive linemen, defensive linemen, super heavyweight lifters, uh, you know, these athletes who have high body fat percentage, they still make great gains, you know, after they've already found themselves in a position of having high body fat percentage. It's not like they got there and now lean mass gains are off the table. So, so these observations don't really seem to pan out when we look at those cross-sectional uh, looks at body composition in people with varying degrees of, of body fat. And an extension of that, in the Mass article, I took a look at some of the literature with American football players, which I thought was kind of a, a really nice way to look at the question because we've got this group of people who, when you look at an American football team, we know that there's going to be position groups who have very low body fat and pretty high body fat. There, there's a huge spread. And we know that they're training in the same gym, they're eating at the same dining hall, they're getting trained by the same folks. Like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that's kind of being controlled in this natural experiment. It's not a perfect uh, look at it because there, there might be some different training focuses from position group to position group. But it's not a bad model for looking at this question. And when you look at there are some great studies that look at longitudinal training changes uh, in different position groups on the same football team. And what you see is that the linemen always start the intervention with higher body fat percentage, and it's not close. It's usually a pretty big discrepancy from, you know, the the skill position groups and, and the linemen. So, As a former lineman, I
1: object to that terminology. Uh, I find it belittling and othering. Linemen are skilled too.
0: <laughs> that, that that that's. I mean, honestly, that is extremely true. Like w- when you. <laughs> Linemen are incredible. Uh, I don't want to get on too big of a tangent, but there, there was a, a, a guy on my wrestling team in high school who was a really exceptional lineman. Um, so he wrestled at like 270 pounds. He ended up winning a Super Bowl, so he was pretty good. Um, but there was this one moment where I was watching one of his matches and he did something where he was so light on his feet and so nimble. I was like, I could never do that. And I wrestle at 140 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, yeah, these linemen are skilled. Like oh, yeah. it's it's remarkable. But skill positions, cornerback, receiver, etc. So when we look at the longitudinal training changes, the linemen in the the selection of studies I found that that did report position group specific changes, they tended to gain as much or more lean mass and they, they tended to have uh, either similar effects on fat mass or uh, larger reductions in fat mass while they were gaining similar or greater amounts of lean mass. So, you know, without calculating a P-ratio, I mean, they had leaner gains happening uh, in the studies that I looked at. So you you could say, oh, well, I can maybe find other... St- I, I didn't try to cherry pick, but I, I didn't have access to the entirety of all observations and football players. Try to do a good job getting some studies together, but even if, you know, maybe this is uh, inadvertently cherry picked, but I think the the challenge is it would indicate that this relationship that's hypothesized is not strong enough to really to really impact these numbers across contexts, right? So if, if we can find enough areas where it doesn't seem to pan out, it's really hard to justify that this relationship is strong enough and consistent enough to get really worked up about, you know, if we can find so many counterpoints. So, um, another area of literature we can look at, like I said, is looking at longitudinal body comp changes in people who have lost weight and are regaining weight. Uh, As I mentioned, when we look at the physique athlete literature, Weight regain after a competition, I mean, talk to somebody who's done it. It ain't lean gains. Like if you're a natural bodybuilder and you're coming off, you know, from, from being stage lean, the, the big challenge there is how do we get back to a healthy spot where our hormones are functioning normally without gaining a ton of fat right off, right off the bat? So it, it's really the inverse where we're trying to say, how do we deal with this crappy P ratio coming off of this, this competition diet? and then ext- extending out from that into less extreme cases of you know untrained folks who are losing weight and then regaining it either intentionally or unintentionally again it's usually a worse p ratio or an unchanged p ratio but we do not see that literature where they lost some body fat and then said oh sweet now that you're regaining weight it's a whole bunch of muscle
1: yeah i mean c- quite famously when people uh taking yo-yo dieting they don't get bigger every time i mean they they might get bigger in terms of like total mass but you know it's it's not like oh man i've been yo-yo dieting for two decades and now my arms are tearing out of my shirts
0: yeah and of course someone could push back at that and say well the yo-yo dieting literature those aren't people that are lifting and then it's like yeah but like the entire evidence base for this hypothesis is in people who don't lift Mm -hmm. you know so it's it's kind of a yeah. So m- moving on, um, I-, I think, you know, at that point we had looked at all the stuff that was kind of already pre-packaged and kind of sitting there in the literature. And this is your idea. Um, and I was really annoyed that, uh, you told me after mass was after the mass article had been written. Cause I was like, damn, that's a good idea.
1: Well, I mean, I could tell you were working hard. You seem, <laughs> you seemed stressed out. Uh, and if I would have dropped that in like the comments when I was peer reviewing your article, um, I, I I would have been saying like, "Hey Eric, here's a here's a project. I don't know how it's going to pan out. It's going to take you at least a dozen hours. Uh, please get this done in the next three days." Yeah. So I I decided to be nice for once.
0: Yeah. It it could not have been done well in the time that was available. So it's 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 good that we revisited later. But basically what we did here, and you were really helpful with this in terms of coming up with the the damn idea, which in hindsight is so obvious, I hate myself for not thinking of it, and also aggregating the data, getting it put together. But we're like, listen, there are literature, there are studies that document changes in body comp in response to lifting. And in those studies, people have different body fat at the beginning. So It's not like this is an unobservable thing that will, ah, you know, sometimes there's research questions. You're like, damn, I guess we'll never know, (laughs) know, like unless somebody does a huge study. And it's like, well, this this evidence exists. We just have to go find it, aggregate it and then analyze it. And so we gathered uh, the, the challenge here was we need to find studies where we can get the individual data. You know, looking at the averages isn't going to cut it for this particular question. So we were able to gather the individual data for seven studies. And this is, I think, a really really exciting extension of our talk about open science. If more data sets were openly available, we could have put together, you know, 36 studies, hundreds of participants, and you could do this for other questions that come up. Like, it would be a really exciting thing. Um, but anyway, we gathered seven studies. Yeah.
1: Just for context, uh, when I was looking for open data sets, I have, um, I I have a database of 89 studies that I know report, uh, changes in, all of them report changes in strength and like two thirds of them report body comp or hypertrophy changes, uh, that I pulled together for a data project I worked on last year, um. I started by looking at all of those studies. None of them had open data sets. Then I thought like, oh, what studies do I know of off the top of my head that have open data? That got me two. Uh, And then um, there's like through, uh, there's like databases you can search where um, like data sets are uploaded to like supplemental materials. So I did like several keyword searches, uh, and just spent a cumulative probably five hours just like scrolling through papers with supplemental material, uh, and came up with exactly three more studies that had open data. Uh, And then uh, Mike Zordo's hooked us up with a data set, and Eric Helms hooked hooked us up with a data set. Uh, So like realistically. when Eric said like 36 studies, that's definitely lowballing it. Of all of the of all of the research that has been done in our area that reports changes in body comp after a resistance training stimulus, there have to be hundreds of potential papers that oh, yeah. that that we could uh, put into a model if they all had open data. Uh, and out of those hundreds of potential studies we were able to get data for seven of them and two of the seven were just because we knew the people who collected it. Uh, we, we were able to find five actual open data
0: sets out there on the wild, um, which is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, you know, it's not anybody's fault. It's just like, that's never been the culture of yeah. the field is to make data open. And yeah. All, so
1: all of which is to say, if you hear seven studies and you're like, ah, oh, man, Wish they had more studies. We fucking tried. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, like I said, I I spent probably five hours just like, just tabbing through search results, looking for these data sets. And there just aren't that many out there.
0: Yeah. And and if we get more, we'll jam more into the model. I mean, it's quite, it'll be quite easy to do that. But uh, for this kind of preliminary look at it, we've got seven studies with, uh, I think, 161 uh, participants that are represented among those those seven studies. Yeah, 161. And so y- you can imagine what we're trying to do here on the x-axis. We've got the baseline body fat percentage of, of the individuals. And then the question is, what goes on the y-axis? Um, P-ratio itself gets challenging because uh, one of the scenarios that comes up is recomposition. So someone who gains lean mass but actually loses weight because they also lost some fat mass during the intervention. And that would hardly be considered a, a negative thing or an unfavorable change in body composition based on the context of what the studies are trying to do with the intervention. Uh, but, but of course it, in that scenario, your P ratio becomes negative, which is weird and introduces weird patterns in the data. So what we did uh, and Greg, you came up with this, which is great it's, I'm going to call it like a lean gains metric, you know, basically the, the change in fat free mass minus the change in fat mass. And so this metric in kilograms basically rewards you for gaining lean mass and then essentially penalizes you for gaining fat mass in terms of your score. So, so if you gain a bunch of lean mass and lose some fat mass, you're going to have a positive high number. Uh, so so hopefully that makes sense. did I explain that well enough? I think so. yeah, so you know, if the number's high, it means you had some really lean gains
1: yeah and just just to clarify further why we couldn't use p ratio uh, like Eric said, basically as soon as any number becomes negative, things get kind of screwy um so a situation where you lose lean mass and gain weight, which is a very bad outcome and a situation where you gain lean mass and lose weight would both give you a negative number if you were calculating like a conventional p ratio and it would be indistinguishable right um so like basically like middle of the road outcomes make quantitative sense as p ratios but both very very good outcomes and very very bad outcomes look identical (laughs) when you're calculating p ratios uh, which don't give you the statistical properties that you want to see when you're uh, actually trying to answer these
0: questions. It, it kind of highlights that idea of you've got this kind of beautiful theoretical model in your head that's just kind of, you know, theory-driven, and you've got this beautiful beautiful curve in mind, and then you get real data into the mix, and you're like, well, wait a minute, like, this is more complicated than that. Like, yeah. It gets a little messier. So, so that's the way that we approach the analysis. And there's a, a few ways you could look at that, right? So you could do regular regression And, you know, just look at, you know, as body fat goes up at baseline, how does that affect your lean gains outcome? Uh, And you can look at that within each study individually. And what we generally found within each study individually is basically nothing. uh, A few kind of weak correlations that, that are pretty meaningless, some positive, some negative, and then two that were actually like kind of notably positive, which would, Go in the one, op-
1: one that was very notably positive. One
0: was statistically significant. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what that would mean is when, when we say positive, it means if you had a higher body fat percentage at baseline, you had a better outcome in terms of this lean gains metric. You made a higher lean gains value throughout the study. So this actually goes uh, completely opposite the direction of this kind of hypothesized p ratio idea. So that's if you look at each study individually, a little bit of evidence saying that the P ratio idea is actually in the wrong direction, and then other studies saying this this P ratio thing probably just doesn't matter too much uh, when you look at, at these outcomes. So another way you could do it is say, well, let's do regular regression and just jam all these studies into one regression model and just treat them all like they're from the same study. And if you're a statistician and you heard that and you spit out your, your coffee, don't worry, there's more coming later. <laughs> I know, we we address it. But if you were to do that, um, then what you find is overall, in aggregate, uh, the higher body fat you have at baseline, the better outcomes were, uh, you know, so, so there was a positive slope that was statistically significant indicating that the higher body fat you had at baseline the better outcomes were for this lean gains metric and the p-value was uh point zero 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 seven uh eleven zeros there now if you're a statistician like i said you're saying oh that's terrible you can't just assume that those are independent data you have to deal with the fact that those are seven Independent clusters from seven different studies and uh, I did a lot of reading Uh, Borrowed my girlfriend's uh, Hierarchical regression textbook and so, uh, you know, we accounted for that we did a linear mix model uh, with with random intercepts for study and so uh, of course with that approach we are going to get more robust results that are a little bit more solid and statistically defensible but the the slope was actually like almost identical. Uh the p-value was 0.007. Still significant. Uh the the relationship was the same, but this is a much more statistically robust way to do it. Um so now the statisticians are back on board and they've got a sigh of relief. So again, the idea is the higher body fat people had at the beginning of the study, uh, the better their outcomes were for this lean gains metric. Again, the the, the relationship going the opposite direction of this. P-ratio idea in terms of being inhibitory, uh, you know, if if you have high body fat percentage. Now, um, we dug deeper. Uh, And so you can get to the the heart of this relationship. Instead of using that lean gains metric as the outcome, I did a model where we looked at the change in fat-free mass as the outcome and a model where we use the change in fat mass as the outcome. Now, when you look just at the change in fat-free mass... With body fat percentage on the x-axis, there's no relationship. It, it, it is meaningless, the slope of zero. Body fat percentage at baseline did not impact the amount of fat-free mass that these people gained in any direction at all. When you look at uh, fat mass as the outcome, it tells a very simple story. People who had higher body fat percentage at baseline tended to lose more fat mass throughout the intervention. And, and that's it. And so...
1: So, so so basically, um kind of painting in broad strokes, the, the accretion of lean mass was similar, but people with higher body fat levels were basically gaining as much lean mass in a slight to moderate calorie deficit as people with lower body fat were at maintenance, right? More yeah, or less.
0: Yeah, the, the people with higher body fat percentage did not have any impairment. Uh, In terms of their ability to put on lean mass going through the same exact intervention, but they were more likely to have a a bit of a recomposition effect where as they were gaining that same amount of of lean mass, they were in fact losing some fat mass along the way. So again, that is indicating that in terms of this whole P-ratio idea, it was actually better gains uh, for the people who had higher body fat percentage at baseline, but it's not that hypertrophy was being blunted or potentiated or anything like that. It's just that they were more likely to be experiencing this kind of recomposition due to the loss of fat mass. And so uh, I wouldn't necessarily contend that we have the perfect model and, you know, we did it because what you find with this, and again, this gets back to the original thing I said, the default null hypothesis is that th- th- this P-ratio thing probably doesn't matter in terms of inhibiting or potentiating hypertrophy, this idea that having high body fat at baseline is going to uh, potentiate or hinder your your lean mass gains. The null hypothesis is that that shouldn't matter. And so when you when you set out to do something like this and say, I'm going to disprove this idea, it's hard to, to really disprove something. But we're kind of in a position where we've talked about several different lines of research that all seem to be completely equivocal or leaning in the opposite direction of this idea that you should lose fat before you bulk because it's going to enhance your P ratio and give you significantly leaner gains. And so based on all this, all these lines of evidence, I would propose a simpler and much more parsimonious model. And the model is the following weight gain, is dictated by the magnitude of overfeeding just how positive is your energy balance that's weight gain now the proportion of weight gained as lean mass is going to be dictated by the presence of a stimulus for lean mass gain and so in the context of a resistance training study that's going to be your training intervention
1: and, and probably the magnitude of uh your surplus too right? a- absolutely
0: yeah uh so You know, and and that helps us explain why we see that P ratio in people recovering from anorexia is there is a a massive stimulus for the accretion of lean mass because of the prior atrophy of critically important lean tissues. And and so, but in the context of healthy individuals doing resistance training, this comes down to: Are you feeding yourself enough to make gains? And are you training well? You know, do you have a solid training stimulus? Uh, And and so that's that's pretty much it. You know. the lean mass gains are going to be, you know, directly tied to the, the stimulus for lean mass gains and whether or not the nutritional intervention is permissive of lean mass gains. And then any additional body fat gained, it really comes down to how much energy, positive energy balance is left over after all the energy consuming processes have kind of used up their energy. And so you might be listening to that model and saying, well, yeah, that's obvious. And to me, that's kind of the point. Like, I, I think this whole P-ratio idea is adding complexity where we need not add any complexity. I, I think this stuff... Re- well, not,
1: not just where we don't need it, but where it's actually inappropriate.
0: Yeah, I I, I was being charitable, but if we're throwing that out. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I think we are in a position where there are several lines of evidence that lean against it. um, And no really relevant lines of evidence that lean for it unless we have a massive blind spot that we haven't considered. And Mm -hmm. I'm totally open to that. But the way I see it, this is a a hypothesis that has very questionable foundations in in the evidence. There's a lot of evidence leaning against it. And uh, I I think the much more simple model is much more uh, compatible with the evidence that we do have. Makes sense to me. All right, so you've got a research review segment, right?
1: I do, yeah. So uh, in the most recent fireside chat episode we put out when we uh, were kind of looking back at the year in research, one of the things I mentioned that um, where, where there's been a fair amount of work in the past year uh, that I kind of came around on pretty recently is the concept of ischemic preconditioning, Um and I I didn't really elaborate on that in the podcast because that's not what we were doing in that segment. And several people messaged me and they're like, ischemic preconditioning. I've never heard of that. What is that? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Um, this is, uh, in some way, a bit of a sneak peek for the issue of mass that's going to come out February 1st. Uh, I have an article on ischemic preconditioning in there. Um, so yeah, uh ischemic preconditioning, uh so let's just break that down first. Ischemic relates to ischemia, cutting off blood flow, uh and preconditioning, doing something before something else to condition yourself for the thing to come. Uh so the what what we're doing here is pretty straightforward. We we are conditioning muscles via ischemia to hopefully perform better in a subsequent exercise bout. So the way that this is typically done in the research um, is you'll use, generally in research context, they'll use a tourniquet, but in a practical context, you could use a knee wrap or something similar. Uh, you, uh, you would wrap it tight enough to cut off uh, both venous and arterial blood flow, Uh, And that way, it's different from blood flow restriction training. So in blood flow restriction training, generally, you're only trying to cut off venous blood flow, but not arterial. With ischemic preconditioning, you want it to be tight enough to cut off arterial blood flow as well. Uh, You could verify that by checking for the absence of a pulse. So if you're doing this for your arms, uh, you put the wraps on tight. And if you do feel a pulse in your wrist still, uh, the wraps need to be tighter if you don't feel a pulse you're good uh, same thing with the ankles if you're doing this on your legs uh, so you occlude all blood flow for five minutes then you remove the wraps just chill out for five minutes allow those tissues to reperfuse uh, and then you repeat that process three or four times so three or four rounds of uh, ischemia and three or four rounds of reperfusion uh, and then once you're done The wraps come off, and then it's time to exercise. Um, So that may sound weird, and it's about to sound weirder. So uh, content warning, I'm about to discuss uh, some old research. So uh, Trex can put some timestamps on here uh, where if you want to skip ahead uh, and not hear about very bad things being done to dogs, you don't have to. Uh, But anyway, with that out of the way... Uh, ischemic preconditioning was first studied, um, by a researcher named Murray in 1986. I do not know how this idea came to his mind, but, uh, uh, basically what he did is he had two groups of dogs open their chest cavity up. Um, and in one, one group of dogs, he did, uh, ischemic preconditioning procedure for, uh, one of the major arteries supplying the myocardium uh, the, the heart muscle. Um, and so one of those major arteries, uh, occlude all blood flow for five minutes, reperfuse for five minutes, occlude for five minutes, reperfuse for five minutes, repeat four times. Uh, so he did that in one group of dogs, the other group of dogs, no ischemic preconditioning whatsoever. And then in both groups of dogs, cut off blood flow through that artery for 40 minutes. Uh, that, induces a heart attack. You're, you're cutting off uh, blood flow to the heart. So that caused a myocardial infarction. Uh, and then what they did is compare the size of the affected tissue from the infarction uh, in the is- ischemically preconditioned dogs versus the dogs that hadn't undergone preconditioning. And what they found was very striking uh, the size of the infarct was reduced by about 75 percent in the dogs that had just undergone ischemic preconditioning. Uh, they also looked at some blood flow variables and found that uh, things like collateral blood flow didn't really seem to be different between the groups, meaning that um, you know the the ischemically preconditioned dogs weren't protected uh, against the 40 minutes of ischemia by like collateral blood vessels shunting blood to that area of the myocardium, um, you know, uh, apart from like the the occluded artery. Uh, so it seemed to be driven by uh, metabolic changes within the tissue itself that had been ischemically preconditioned to basically make it more robust against the prolonged uh, ischemic threat that was to come. Um, so anyway, that's that's the first study that uh, stumbled upon this phenomenon, and since then, it's been studied in uh, other animal models and in humans uh, for protection against heart attacks. Basically, it's not going to stop you from having a heart attack, but a ischemically preconditioned heart, uh, if it does have a heart attack, basically the damage will be less severe following it. Um So they've known about that in the context of heart stuff since the eighties, uh, in the two thousands, uh, researchers started looking into this, uh, in the context of exercise. And most of that early research was done, uh, in the context of aerobic exercise. And, uh, there was a systematic review that was published last year. I believe that, uh, that summed up the ischemic preconditioning research, again, largely in aerobic exercise. And it basically found that, uh, It was beneficial for improving exercise performance, more so in sedentary and recreationally trained people than in competitive athletes, Um, but it it did seem to have a a pretty notable and reliable effect, Um, and relevant to Stronger by Science podcast listeners, there have been seven studies that have looked at the effect of ischemic preconditioning on uh, resistance training performance or recovery. Uh, so there was a study that just came out last month by De Silva Tellis and colleagues. Uh, what they did is um, had subjects do three sets of bench press and three sets of leg press to failure with several different conditioning or, or like several different warm-up protocols pre- preceding them, including ischemic preconditioning, sham preconditioning, an active warmup, uh, dynamic stretching, and... Maybe oh yeah, just a control condition, um, and basically they found that uh, when when the same like when this group of subjects had previously undergone ischemic preconditioning, they managed about an extra rep or two per set for the squat and bench press. Uh, so there was a you know a, a, approximately a twenty percent uh, increase in total volume performed across those three sets to failure. Um, Last year, or earlier this year, one of the two, uh, Carvalho and colleagues uh, did an ischemic preconditioning study where they had subjects do a single set of knee extensions to failure with 85% of 1RM uh, following ischemic preconditioning or not ischemic preconditioning, and they found, uh, again, the ischemic when the subjects underwent the ischemic preconditioning condition, uh, they completed about 20-25% more reps Um, going back a little bit further, Novaeus and colleagues, uh, had subjects, uh, trained male subjects do three sets to failure with 80% of one RM on bench press, leg press, pull downs, machine hack squat, shoulder press, and Smith machine back squat, uh, and looked at total volume completed across all of those exercises. Again, finding ischemic preconditioning, improved total volume completed. Uh, Going back a little bit further, Franz and colleagues uh, used ischemic preconditioning um, prior to an eccentric training protocol uh, and looked at both uh, reductions in strength from the start of the protocol to the end of the protocol and also uh, various markers of muscle damage and recovery from training finding that preconditioning, um, ischemic preconditioning uh, mitigated the strength loss pre- to post-exercise and also um, mitigated some of those markers of muscle damage they looked at. Uh, Paradis Deschain, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, I assume it's French, um, looked at the effects of ischemic preconditioning on losses in maximal isokinetic knee extension torque uh, after a fatigue protocol in male and female subjects, finding, again, ischemic preconditioning, um, mitigated uh, performance loss, mitigated strength loss in the male subjects, but not the female subjects, interestingly. Uh, and then finally, two studies by Maricolo and colleagues um, also used uh, samples of trained males. um One of them found that uh, ischemic preconditioning improved volume performance compared to a control condition, but notably not when compared to a sham uh, ischemic preconditioning condition. So basically, same general protocol, but you just don't... uh, You just don't put the pressure cuff on tightly enough to occlude blood flow. So it did beat a control condition, but not a sham condition. Uh, And that is probably the most negative finding we have to this point. Uh, And then the other study by Maricolo and colleagues um, looked at the effects of ischemic preconditioning versus a sham procedure on um, multiple days of, of volume performance. And basically found that ischemic preconditioning did improve volume performance the first day it was used but not the second day um, suggesting that maybe the benefits uh, dissipate over time so overall there there are again seven studies in this budding body of literature uh, six out of the seven have broadly positive findings The most negative one, again, uh, it beat a control condition, but not a sham condition. Um, That's not a huge concern because several of these other studies included a sham condition, and real ischemic preconditioning did beat out sham uh, preconditioning. Uh, And another pretty notable thing about this body of research is uh one of the things one of the things we see when a lot of bodies of research are developing is you initially see protocols used on untrained subjects and then you know maybe you have a half dozen studies on untrained subjects before they actually get some trained subjects in the mix, uh, which is perfectly fine, but you know less useful to people in our general audience. Uh, cool thing about this body of research is of the seven subjects, five out of the seven used trained subjects uh, making this body of literature, uh, though it only contains seven studies, generally, uh, probably more generalizable to our audience than than many bodies of literature would be. Uh, so a few things to note about this and just lingering questions. The first is, do the effects fade over time? So one of those studies by Maricolo Uh, basically tested the effects of ischemic preconditioning twice, finding that it was helpful the first time, but not the second time. So, uh, there is a chance that, you know, it's, it's kind of a one hit wonder, uh, and not the type of thing that you would benefit from doing before every workout. Uh, but again, I wouldn't necessarily take that to the bank because that has only been found in one study. Another open question is: Are there sex differences in terms of responses to ischemic preconditioning? Um, again, only one study has compared the effects in the strength literature, uh, and it did find benefits in males but not females. Um, but again, I don't know how much stock to put in that yet. Uh, I I sk- uh, skimmed like j- j- skimmed uh, the studies included in that systematic review I told you about, uh, that again, included mostly aerobic training studies basically to see like, ah, you know, maybe if there's a half dozen studies in the aerobic training literature, comparing males and females, if a lot of them did find sex differences then it would be like, okay, maybe this one finding in the strength literature is more reliable and durable. But you know, if there's half a dozen that find no sex differences in the, Uh, aerobic training literature then, like yeah okay maybe this is just kind of a false positive um there were no studies in the aerobic training literature as far as i could tell that compared males and females uh they were either all male samples or all mixed sex samples that i don't believe uh compared the male and female subjects uh so that that's still an open question whether ischemic preconditioning is beneficial for female lifters as well um and then another question that there's some evidence kind of d- indirectly related to uh, is how far away from training can you do your ischemic preconditioning and still uh, accrue benefits? So one of the things about this is you know you're doing a five minute on five minute off protocol three to four times. So basically you're signing up for a thirty to forty minute warm up protocol. Uh, if you wanted to do this immediately before training. Um, so one possibility is like, oh, maybe if you could do ischemic preconditioning earlier in the day, uh, at a time that's convenient, like, I don't know, maybe if you just have time at your lunch hour that you wouldn't mind just like (laughs) putting some knee wraps around your arms and legs, uh, and then you're going to work out right after school or right after work, uh, could that potentially be beneficial in the cardiac ischemic preconditioning literature? They find that the positive impact of ischemic preconditioning seems to last for around six hours, uh, suggesting that like maybe you could do it in the morning and then lift at lunch and still see benefits or maybe do it during lunch, and then lift immediately after school or work and still see benefits. Uh, that's what some of the cardiac stuff would potentially suggest, but that hasn't been actually verified in exercise literature yet, so that's that's something that, that I'd be interested in seeing research on just, you know, to, to maybe make this more practical for some people. Um, but anyway, very, very cool concept. I don't know how many people would actually do it again just because you're you're basically signing yourself up for a 30 to 40 minute warm-up protocol um, but the effects do seem to be uh, like reasonably large in magnitude at least in context of uh, ergogenic activities one might engage in to try to boost acute performance uh, it's worth noting there aren't any longitudinal studies yet so we don't know if, That acute increase in performance would actually lead to more hypertrophy or larger strength gains over time. Uh, But at least, again, when compared to other acute ergogenics, uh, the effects seem to be fairly large and fairly consistent. Uh, Again, with uh, six of the seven studies having broadly positive findings. Um, So, anyway, if you wanted to give this a shot, it's, I think, interesting enough to at least try out. A couple notes I would make. Safety should be paramount. One of the things that I think kind of trips people out is thinking like, oh, if I'm cutting off blood flow to my muscles for five minutes, that must be bad for my muscles. And like, your muscles will be fine. Uh, What you would potentially need to be concerned about, I I know that sounds flippant, but like, you know, basically uh, research on the safety of, of full tourniquets, which is what we're talking about here. Um, that, that's mostly looking at like, you know, if you get shot or have like a major injury to a limb, uh, and a medic has to put you in a tourniquet before you can actually get, um, you know, uh, like a a medical procedure done on you. Um, how long can you have a tourniquet before the tourniquet is, is likely to harm you more than the blood loss will? Uh, And you you can actually keep a tourniquet on for for quite a long period of time before you need to worry about damage to your muscles. Um, So when we're talking about five-minute bouts of uh, full occlusion, that that should be perfectly fine for your muscles. What you would need to worry about is potential nerve damage. Um, So in general, that shouldn't be that much of a concern. The two ways you could get in trouble is if you have your, your knee wraps or if you do have a tourniquet, your tourniquet um, very inappropriately tight. So like you do need to get it pretty tight to occlude arterial blood flow, but if you go way tighter than is necessary, you can put too much pressure on a nerve uh, and, and potentially damage it. The other thing you need to look out for is if the device, whatever it is, that you're using to occlude blood flow to a limb, if it's too thin, that is basically putting more pounds per square inch on the nerves that it's passing over. Um, So like if if you use knee wraps, you should be fine. But if you use like one of those thin elastic exercise bands, you might get yourself into trouble. Um, And basically like if if your nerves aren't happy, they're probably going to tell you. Like you might feel some shooting pain. You might feel numbness. You might feel tingling. If you get any nerve-related symptom like that, stop um, and at minimum, try rewrapping and re-wrapping a bit looser. Uh, and if you're, you know, somewhat conservatively wired, uh, eh, just stop. You know, uh, this, this isn't the type of thing that's going to make a night and day difference in your training. Um, but anyway, th- that's just a safety precaution if you do want to give this a shot. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think a really, really interesting thing, um, Oh, a couple things worth noting. I haven't talked about mechanisms yet. The, the full accounting of the mechanisms by which ischemic preconditioning would improve exercise performance. Uh, we don't have that yet, but some of the known mechanisms by which it works, uh, is one things related to, to, uh, nitric oxide signaling. So you, uh, you put a limb in ischemia and then, Uh, Once you allow it to reperfuse, you have a a pretty big uptick in nitric oxide signaling, um, a lot of vasodilation, increased blood flow to the tissue. Another thing you get um, is adenosine receptor activation, which um, has like a, a host of downstream effects. That is thought to be the way by which caffeine exerts its ergogenic effects on exercise. Uh, so basically, it's it's kind of like a caffeine supplement and like a quote-unquote pump supplement all rolled into one, um, which I think is kind of neat.
0: The the adenosine, though, would be acting locally, correct?
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, because normally, like, the majority of what is going on with adenosine and caffeine is centrally mediated, so that's an important thing to... To, to clarify
1: well don't don't people also think that some of the local effects of caffeine are due to um, like calcium related effects downstream of adenosine signaling
0: absolutely yeah and there, there is some really fascinating work in uh, tetraplegic individuals mm-hmm. with caffeine showing that there there does seem to be uh, effects on muscle activity and muscle contractile function that is fully separated from mm-hmm. from the central nervous system but I just wanted to, to clarify it, that people are not going to get any of the central effects that they associate with caffeine. No, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not like they're going to have increased alertness and, yeah. and wakefulness or anything like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. That That's uh, a, a very good caveat. Uh, it, it might have similar local effects in the muscle to caffeine, but not, not the same central effects caffeine would. Um, and the third mechanism by which it might exert an effect is just like a general increase in mitochondrial efficiency due to, uh, some pretty gnarly mechanisms that you probably don't care about unless you're really into biochem. Um, so I won't bore you with them, but, but basically there are some known mechanisms by which it exerts its effect, but we, we don't know all of the potential mechanisms yet, but yeah. Anyway, I I think it's, uh, you know, there's some mechanistic underpinnings for it and there is a, grow a small but growing overall quite positive and consistent body of literature in mostly trained subjects finding uh you know fairly notable acute effects on uh, volume tolerance and fatigability during training so uh yeah if you wanted to give it a shot this is one of the more promising ergogenic interventions that that we've been seeing in the literature recently
0: that's fascinating stuff, and I'm very, I'm very proud of you because, as you and I both know, we record with a team of lawyers in the room, and they were really nodding in approval when you mentioned all the stuff about safety. I, I like that. So <laughs> obviously, this is safe enough to be justifiably done in lab-based settings, but of course, the underlying assumption is that you're applying it correctly. So if you are going to try this, make sure that you are being really careful about making sure you're doing it the right way. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the lawyers were really loving that, so that's good. Sick. Um, Okay, so we're relatively short on time. I do want to address a few pretty practical Q&A questions, Um, you know, just to kind of I want to make sure that we cover several different topics in the uh, in the episode. So uh, just a nice little rapid fire Q&A segment here where I'm going to answer a couple uh, practical questions. But, Greg, please feel free to chime in. Some of these I think you'll have some uh, some input, some feedback on them. Uh, So the first one, the first two actually are from Benjamin Siciliano. And number one is very quick and easy to answer uh, because we've already talked about it in this episode. So the question is, can you gain muscle while eating at maintenance calories if you're getting adequate protein and you have body fat to spare? And that essentially is kind of the main finding of, of the models we put together for that P ratio question, which is absolutely that, that idea of recomposition of gaining muscle while simultaneously losing fat. Uh, that has absolutely been observed in, in all sorts of individuals in our, our data set. There are many of them. Uh, so that, that can definitely happen. And really what it comes down to is, you know, what is your body composition? What is your training status? What is the training stimulus? And, is your nutrition adequate uh, to uh, basically allow hypertrophy to occur in the absence of a large caloric surplus? And in many cases, that is, uh, you know, there there are all sorts of instances where that can be observed. So someone with a little bit more body fat to lose at the beginning, uh, you know, they're, they've got a great training stimulus that based on their training status is adequate to induce, uh, hypertrophy. They've got all their, uh, you know, they, they've got all the nutrition they need to support muscle growth, despite the fact that they might be eating at maintenance or even a little bit below maintenance. So absolutely that is possible. Now, this question I, I think is fun. This, this one is also from Benjamin. Do you think that new lifters might be better off by initially avoiding an evidence-based approach to training and nutrition. In other words, could dreamer bulks, bro splits, ego lifting, and and things like that confer some physiological and psychological adaptations that science just doesn't understand yet? Uh, Greg, do you want to take the first crack at this, or should I? Uh,
1: I I can take a crack at this. Yeah,
0: I'm interested in your perspective here.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean... So the first thing I'll note is that uh, I think it kind of depends on what your definition of quote unquote evidence-based is. Um, and, And the question is like, are you talking about things that have been verified to work in the research or are you talking about things that particular people recommend that are branded and marketed with evidence-based used as a marketing term. Um, And I think that those are oftentimes two very different things. Uh, And I often think that using evidence-based as like a a descriptor of oneself for marketing purposes is basically just code for, uh, hey, I'm going to tell you to do something that's really, really complicated. And I'm going to try to convince you that you need to do something really, really complicated in order to maximize your results. Uh, and that's kind of like my competitive edge in the market. I, I kind of think that that's what's often conveyed when people talk about something that's quote unquote evidence based. And from my perspective, like, no, if you're an untrained lifter, a lot of that shit is completely unnecessary. Um, like as, as long as you're training hard and pretty consistently, like you're going to be fine. Um, you know, you, 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 you might need to make things a little bit more, uh, squirrely and complex at some point, but like, yeah, first couple years in the gym, as long as you're doing something pretty consistent, it's, it's not really going to matter all that much. Um, and then the things you mentioned specifically dreamer bulks, bro splits, ego lifting. Um, so starting with bro splits, um, this is so... That's one of the reasons I I started with that initial caveat for, like, what one means by evidence-based. Because, like, you know, basically, if you ask the question, like, is there plentiful evidence showing that bro splits can result in strength gains and hypertrophy? Like, yeah, absolutely, 100%. And
0: a bro Um, split, just for context, is it safe to say that that's basically training with a frequency of hitting each muscle group once per week. Is that, is that pretty much the agreed upon? Yeah. So I I think so. Yeah.
1: Um, so, so like, yeah, there's, there's some research showing that, uh, a slightly higher frequency, like hitting each muscle group two or three times per week might be a little bit better, but like, if you just want to ask like, what, what does, uh, what does science verify can work for people? Uh, there's, there's plenty of evidence showing that, that bro splits can work perfectly fine. um, Uh, the, the one that really jumped out to me is ego lifting. Um, so here I'm going to go well off the, uh, the, the quote unquote evidence-based talking points and probably just like the general things that people often consider to be good advice. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of ego lifting. I gotta say, (laughs) um, so I guess it kind of depends on like what one means by ego lifting. So, Uh, if, if you're talking about like, you know, letting your form absolutely go to shit or like cutting your reps to allow you to lift more weight, like, you know, half squatting, um, reversing your bench presses, like four inches off your chest or something like that. Like, eh, yeah, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that version of ego lifting. Um, but I, I think oftentimes what people refer to as ego lifting is like, ah, like that person's pushing themselves too hard uh and like i don't know dog i j- i think that's generally fine uh, i don't think humans are made of glass i don't think you're fragile um is maybe there some degree of increased risk of injury by uh you know pushing yourself too hard to get that last rep or add another five pounds to the bar Maybe, but like, I'm kind of of the opinion that the increase in relative risk isn't particularly large. Uh, and I think that like the mindset that that version of ego lifting engenders is not a bad mindset to go to the gym with, um, where, you know, you're going into it with the expectation that you're really going to get after it, uh, and you know, you're trying to do more than last time, more volume, more weight, more something. Um, so like, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Speaking as a coach, uh, if, if two people come to me and they're alike in every way except their psychological makeup and one of them uh, just really wants to overdo it in the gym, like push every set closer to failure than I want them to, do more volume than I want them to, and i have to pull them back versus someone who i'm like constantly having to encourage to do more the the first person there 99 times out of 100 is is probably going to make better gains short term medium term long term um that's just been my experience so like yeah if as long as you're not talking about like really cheating technique or you know doing something uh, that that would generally be considered like poor form uh, when you're talking about ego lifting. If, if it's more like going to the gym cocky and like expecting yourself to be getting better and, and really, really getting after it, I think that's totally fine. And I think that um, it it builds uh, the the sort of mental fortitude that sets you up for better gains down the road. It's It's way easier to to have to pull yourself back than to force yourself to train harder, in my opinion.
0: And what about the final one, which is dreamer bulks?
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. um, I mean, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, uh, and I think our opinions are the same. Uh, Scientifically, it doesn't seem like a great idea. If your caloric surplus gets too big, uh, your... (laughs) Since this is the P-ratio episode, your P-ratio is going to go to shit. Uh, The training stimulus you're imposing is sufficient to build a given amount of muscle and lean mass, and you're just putting way more calories in your system than you need to uh, accomplish that. Like, yeah, it's. eh, I think physiologically it's not the best idea, but one of the things we've noticed is that like, Most lifters who've wound up being successful have dreamer bulked at some point in in their lifting career. Uh, And and I think like, so I think the value of a dreamer bulk is really for people who are starting to feel like they're stagnating. I I, I think that it does help a lot of people like break through that initial plateau and realize for themselves that they can make it to like the, the quote unquote next level. Um like I experienced that. I uh so the first powerlifting meet I did, uh I competed at 165. Uh and then, you know, just from touching weights, I I naturally built some muscle, filled out the 181 class. Uh and just kind of stuck around the 181 class for a while and initially made some gains and then eventually like hit a wall pretty hard. Um and I was thinking like, oh man, like maybe I'm not as cut out for this whole powerlifting thing as I thought I was. Uh, I've only been really, really training seriously for maybe about a year and like I'm already hitting a wall pretty hard. This is not good. Um, and then I just decided like, well, I didn't decide. I <laughs> I came across the, uh, the famous Elite FTS article about JM Blakely uh, and his very unorthodox nutrition practices. I'll, I'll put it like that. Um,
0: the, the line that always gets me is uh, when you're having your large pizza, put any kind of oil on it other than motor oil. Yeah. Isn't that the one?
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, so to be clear, I did not follow the J.M. Blakely diet to a T or anything like that, but it, it impressed upon me the idea that like, hey, man, if you want to get big and strong, you got to eat a lot. And so over like maybe a four-month span, I went from like 183 to about 216, um, which to be clear, was way faster than I should have gained weight. But uh, I way broke through those plateaus I had. Like I came out way stronger on the other side and it made me realize like, hey, these numbers that I thought uh, might be around where I'd stick for a while... Uh, no, like I, I had way more in my tank than I thought I did. And and that kind of opened up the idea in my head, like how much further can I go? So it, it, it did kind of like unlock that in me mentally via helping me get past that first, um, somewhat demotivating plateau I found myself in. Could I have done the same thing by, uh, you know, overeating to a smaller degree and not dream or balking? I'm sure I could have. Absolutely. Um, But also, like, I don't know, dog. I was 16 uh, and didn't know anything about nutrition. And uh, so, you know, if I was trying to go for a controlled, methodical bulk, I just didn't know enough (laughs) to have been able to accomplish that at the time. So, like, the Dreamer bulk did for me what it needed to. uh, And I don't regret it. So...
0: Yeah, I mean the one thing you can say about a dreamer bulk is that you definitely don't leave gains on the table. Correct. Or food, you don't leave, leave food on the table either. Correct. Just eating and making gains, and probably putting on more fat than you need to from a physiological perspective. But you know, I I agree with with most of what you said there. Um, you know, I, I think the most important thing you can do when you're just getting into lifting is you know, don't leave gains on the table because you're afraid to put on, you know, a pound of fat. I I think that's really counterproductive. And another thing is like, you got to fall in love with it. I I really think that's the best thing you could do in your first year or two of of lifting. For sure. And, And so like, for me, I got into the bro splits, fell in love with it, made a ton of gains, ate a lot. It was awesome. You know, like, and I think the one thing that holds people back and they think, Oh, I, I got to do everything perfect from the start. I think a lot of people believe that the the like beginner gains. They think that that relationship or that phenomenon is purely temporal in nature. Like there is a time window. Yeah, that
1: that that's a really really good
0: point. The, there is a time window in which your beginner gains occur, and if you do stupid stuff during it, you miss it, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Your your beginner gains are, hey my muscles are feeling tension for the first time. And and then they grow. And you you, even if you're doing a pretty suboptimal approach, when you begin, you'll get some degree of beginner gains. But then if you refine your approach and make really substantive improvements in your approach to training, you'll make another round of beginner gains, whether that occurs six months into your training career or six years into your training career. And like for me, a great example is guess what, when I was 12, Probably could have trained better. Uh, that's when I started training and it was stupid. But when I was like 18, I really got into it and I made another round of beginner gains six years into my training career. Uh, and then I also had a, a pretty lovely dreamer bulk around that time. Uh, and I, I kind of chuckled when you mentioned the idea of like kind of opening up your eyes and saying like, oh, the, I'm able to push past some of those those barriers and limitations d- during that dreamer bulk. Uh, I've mentioned this on the show there was a time during my dreamer bulk and I went from like 150 to like 195 in a pretty short period of time. Hell yeah. And uh there was a time there when I thought like, "Hmm, am I going to be on the Olympia stage?" <laughs> if so, I better put the pedal to the metal. And uh yeah, I mean I mean there was times there where I was, you know, squatting heavy and hard 4 days a week for months on end and like if you're not ego lifting to get through that, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, what is what is compelling you to go in and do those kinds of workouts? Like like you said, I mean, if, if ego lifting is just saying, screw it, I'm going to go kill myself in the gym and use insane form that, that totally breaks down, that's a bad idea. But But there's got to be some degree of ego kind of driving you towards some of those more rigorous workouts and, and the more rigorous training blocks. And if it's not there, I just don't know if you're going to have the, the intrinsic nastiness to get into the gym and just kind of, really leave it all in the gym. So, so I, I think there is a time and a place for letting your ego push you a little bit in the gym. And and yeah, I mean, the the last thing you want to do when you're starting out is say, oh, I, I've got a a finite window here to make my beginner gains. I have to have this ultra methodical approach that removes everything i enjoy from the process like that that's a losing combination in my opinion okay one other question here that i want to answer and this is this is the good stuff people know why they come to this podcast oh god i i know what it's about to be it's to get recipes from me <laughs> so the person with the question is named ben um i believe it's a different ben than the previous two questions and the question is, what are some recipes for high volume but low calorie foods so that you can feel full when you're trying to get shredded? And they came to the right place, but these are actually serious uh, answers. I think these are pretty good, to be honest. Um, so, you know, you go to, you know, a Chipotle or something like that, you get a burrito bowl. People tried to make everything out of cauliflower. That was a trend. I don't know if they're still trying. In most cases, it failed. Cauliflower cannot be made into everything, but it can be made into rice. Cauliflower rice is very, very good. So a great option is a a burrito bowl using cauliflower rice, put in some vegetables that are sauteed, put in some shredded chicken, some some sauce or whatever, some salsa, you're good to go. That That is a great meal. And you can use Greek yogurt as a sour cream substitute, and it is honestly quite good. Um... Number two, buffalo chicken. You can make a buffalo chicken type dish very, very lean. If you use shredded chicken breast, uh, hot sauce with a little extra cayenne pepper, some red pepper in there, and instead of using ranch dressing, if it's late in prep and you're really desperate, I know it's not ideal, but you can use ranch spices without all the, the creaminess and whatnot. Uh, And you can get pretty close with some good buffalo chicken with with that combination of ingredients. It's not perfect, but you're hungry anyway. You're going to love it. Uh, A nice simple meal is chicken breast with uh, just a little bit of Italian dressing. And then I think it's called California veggie mix. But basically, that's what they call it at at the grocery store on the bag. But it's just uh, broccoli, cauliflower, and carrots kind of chopped up. Very basic, but that's a really nice, I, that's a meal that got me through some hard times when I was, you know, doing some bodybuilding stuff. Egg white omelet with veggies, you can never go wrong. That, that's a great option. Uh, lean beef with broccoli and soy sauce. Very lean meal that, that is quite delicious. Um, you can make yogurt out of uh, Greek yogurt with some PB2 peanut butter. And Some uh, sugar-free chocolate pudding mix mix that all up It's a really nice kind of peanut butter chocolate pudding substitute And if you want to drizzle some sugar-free chocolate syrup on top you can do that It's really not bad and then finally this is my most controversial one. I saved it for last This was a really good thing at first and then I got carried away I flew a little too close to the Sun. I'll admit that but you do oats you cook the oats the way you normally do. Make them a little bit more runny than you normally would. And then you mix in uh, pumpkin puree. So you've got this kind of oat-pumpkin mixture. You put in pumpkin spice and Splenda. That is delicious. I haven't gone off the rails yet. That is very good. Now, I was eating that during... Uh, a pretty serious diet and the calories had to come from somewhere. And I admit I made some mistakes. It was an error in judgment, but I started just kind of phasing out the oats. <laughs> and, and then one day I looked down and I was like, Oh my God, I'm just eating pumpkin puree at this point. Uh, so that, that one got a little bit away from me, but, but honestly, if you've got enough calories to, to get some of the oats in the mix there, that's a pretty solid meal, a uh, really good fall flavor, you know, you could trick yourself into believing that you're eating pumpkin pie. Uh, so so that's some good stuff.
1: If I could just add one uh, v- very simple addition you could make. Uh, if you're making anything with ground beef, uh, if so, I mean, you could, you could shred cabbage yourself if you have way too much time on your hands. Uh, or you can just get bags of uh, coleslaw veggies at the store. So just like pre-shredded, generally cabbage and like maybe a little carrot. Uh but really the cabbage is what you're looking for just like sh- pre-shredded cabbage. Uh if you toss some shredded cabbage in with any ground beef dish that you're that you're cooking, uh all the way up to like a 1 to 1 ratio, you can basically double the volume of what you'll be consuming. Um it doesn't affect the taste or texture all that much. It does certainly impart some flavor of cabbage which I personally tend to like. If you don't like cabbage, uh, tough luck this tip's not for you uh, but yeah you can you can come pretty close to like doubling the volume of any ground beef thing you're making by uh, by tossing some shredded cabbage in uh, and I I personally find it quite good uh, even if I'm not trying to stretch calories like I just like it, it tastes it tastes nice in my opinion
0: yeah and, and I've mentioned my on the topic of coleslaw, I've mentioned my low calorie coleslaw recipe before, and it's it's actually good. It, it's just uh, the, the shredded pre-made, uh, you know, cabbage and carrot mix. And you put in some Greek yogurt, you put in a little bit of Splenda, you put in a little bit of Dijon mustard, mix it all together. It's good stuff. It's really good. Um, okay. You, you weren't horrified by my, uh, by my contribution. So I'm going to call that a win.
1: No, those, uh, I mean, you, you know how I feel about you just eating pumpkin puree. Yeah. Uh, but, but everything else you mentioned, um, those are, those are perfectly reasonable things to eat when calories are really tight.
0: Nice. All right. So to play us out, uh, we, we've both got a little something for me. It's a realization that I, I'm ashamed that I didn't know this all along. Um, so A couple years ago. So this year in the New Year's episode, we didn't really talk about smart goals much because I was just like, you know what? I'm more focused on building some habits and I don't want to make it ultra specific and super quantified. I don't want it. I don't want the goal to be that regimented. I just want to build some good habits. And that's been working really well. But in a prior episode around New Year's time, We talked, I talked about SMART goals, and I didn't know the origin of where SMART goals came from. Me being an optimist, very naive, I assumed it was just some well intentioned folks saying, hey, let's help people achieve their goals and and accomplish their dreams and stuff. You know, we want to support the individuals. Boy, was I wrong. I learned from Helms, the good doctor, that uh, the SMART goal actually originated in a corporate setting, and I just can't view it the same way anymore. Uh, so now when I think of a smart goal, I I think of, (laughs) I think of some corporate structure, just grinding its workers to the bone, trying to extract more labor from them. It just ruins the concept for me. So, um, I retract, I condemn, I disavow, and I fully separate myself from all past uses of the smart goal concept. Doesn't mean it can't be used effectively, but, uh, it just puts such a sour taste in my mouth because I had a, a very different, uh, Totally baseless idea of where it originated. I never thought about where it came from and the the corporate setting just ruins it for me
1: Yeah, it's just like a straight line down from uh, what was his name? uh, frederick winslow taylor like the the idea of taylorism like Man humans are these organic beings but like we're currently In the middle of the second industrial revolution. What if humans were machines and we could (laughs) Squeeze every last bit of efficiency out of them to make our uh, production lines work a little faster Um, Yeah, just uh, just really bleak dehumanizing shit.
0: Yeah, and and the uh, You've probably heard the smart goal acronym used several different ways like uh, different things Kind of inserted for for the acronym and I think a lot of that is because it it is originally for a corporate setting where some of the original Acronym terms just don't make sense like, like the A is assignable and like for most people that, that just doesn't make sense. So they kind of adapted it to make it this like, Hey, use a smart goal for your behavior change model. And it's like, ah, it just ruins it for me. But, uh, that doesn't mean it can't be used effectively, but, uh, I, I was very appalled to learn that. Uh, but Greg, what do you got to, uh, to play us out here?
1: Uh, yeah. So to, to stay on the topic of cooking, um, one of the things I've been really getting into recently is making flavor pastes, uh, which is more appetizing than it sounds. Basically, all you do is you get a mix of fleshy vegetables, so uh, things like onions, peppers, tomatoes, carrots, celery, and... Um, some mix of those things depending on what what type of paste you're trying to make, uh, what general vibe you're going for. Uh, so you start with some fleshy vegetables, some spices, and some herbs. Uh, you start by just uh, roughly chopping everything and throwing it all in a blender or food processor until you're dealing with a relatively homogenous liquid, I guess. Uh, and you pour all of it, the liquid, the, the bits of, of plant matter, all of it, Uh, into a nonstick pan with a little bit of fat in it and you start it over high heat Um, and to start with you're just trying to get most of the liquid out once uh, I I would say once the liquid has reduced by uh, between half to two-thirds give or take uh, you want to kick the volume down to low medium low uh, basically a temperature where nothing is going to burn uh, before you have a chance to really tend to it. And then you just stand there and, uh, and just keep stirring and stirring. Great time to put something on TV to watch as you mindlessly stir your pan. Uh, good time to put on a podcast, maybe even this podcast, prior episodes. We have a great back catalog, uh, just a suggestion. And you just keep stirring until uh, virtually all of the water is gone. Uh, everything is starting to caramelize. And the first thing you'll notice is a big scent transformation. So uh, when when you blend up a lot of those vegetables, especially if you you have some alliums in the mix, so some onions, some shallots, some garlic, something like that, when you blend everything up, uh, when you smell it, it's probably initially going to... I I wouldn't say smell offensive, but it's going to be pretty sharp. It's going to be pretty pungent, pretty acrid. Uh, And over time... The flavors will really mellow out. They'll start getting sweet as everything caramelizes down. And basically, you just keep stirring until uh, virtually all of the liquid is gone and you have a thick paste left over. Um, Basically, you know you're getting close when bubbles stop and there's just kind of like a bit of a hissing and just like a, a uniform like sheet of steam coming up out of the pan, but it's, it's gotten too viscous to actually bubble anymore. Uh, that's when, you know, you're getting pretty close. So with a flavor paste, basically you can just make yourself a little flavor bomb that you can use to start any dish super easily. Um, and so like this is going to take, I'm not going to lie to you. You're probably going to be standing over a pan, stirring it for the better part of an hour, if not over an hour. Um, so there, there is some time investment on the front end, but then you have just this beautiful paste that uh, carries, you know, 90% of the flavor that you might want to put into a dish moving forward. So it it makes cooking so much easier and more efficient until you run out of it. And, you know, you, you can... Uh, go with different pastes with generally different vibes for different dishes. So uh, currently we have uh, some Indian, insti- uh, Indian inspired paste uh, in, the f- in the fridge. So um, the base is tomatoes, onions, garlic, uh, red peppers, cumin, coriander, cardamom, mustard seeds, cinnamon, and allspice. Uh, and maybe some other things I'm forgetting, but th- those were the big ones. Uh, simmered it down, and it's just a, a great uh, red curry paste, and I made the best goddamn pot of lentils I've ever had in my life with this stuff. Um, and and the really good thing about it is it's, like, you can, you can make it in bulk. Um, since the first part of it you're doing over high heat, like, the amount to make... Uh, like four dinners worth of paste versus, versus like a dozen is basically the same because like a lot of what you're trying to do is get the water out and you can do that pretty quickly over high heat. Uh, so it, it scales pretty well uh, and it it freezes really well too. So like, you know, you could, you could spend a day and just like take three or four hours and make three or four great flavorful pastes. Uh, and then anything that you're going to be sauteing, you just like rehydrate it in a little bit of water. Anything that you're going to be uh, boiling, so like a pot of beans, pot of rice, something like that, just just throw some flavor paste in. Uh, and man, it's so good. I feel like this doesn't sound as appetizing as it should because paste doesn't seem like that appetizing of a word. Uh, but but take my word for it. It's great. Um, it basically, like any, uh, any dominant kind of flavors of the world that you want to go with uh you can make a flavor paste for so like you know if you wanted to go with like a a french mirepoix uh you could start with just celery onions tomatoes and then you know if you want to throw some uh some thyme in there if you want to throw some rosemary in there you can Uh, but yeah you, you can just uh throw a mirepoix in a blender blend it down cook it down until everything's nice and caramelized and sweet. And then, uh, you know, if you're making some sort of sauce and you want some some sweetness and some vegetal notes in it, just throw some mirepoix paste in. It's going to be fucking great. Um, and, and really, like, your, your imagination is the only thing that limits you with this technique. Uh, and I think the beauty of it is... It's really hard to go wrong because once you cook it down enough and everything caramelizes, even if you don't end up hitting the flavor profile that you're aiming at, it's still going to be delicious. Like it's, it's very, very hard to screw up. I think the only way you could screw it up is if you just happen to get it way, way, way too spicy. Um, But I mean, like, I don't know don't do that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's been, uh, really, really useful for nights that I want to make something really good and I want to make it quick. Uh, like I, I don't want to spend the time, um, you know, roasting things down, caramelizing things, developing flavors, like, ugh. A lot of good cooking, one of the most important ingredients is the time that you invest into the dish because complex flavors take a take a while to develop. And with this, you can get a lot of those same complex flavors, you know, a month ago. <laughs> and then you can just like put a little dollop of the paste in into whatever you're making. And uh, it can really, really just transform a dish and make weeknight cooking uh, very delicious and also very, very quick and efficient. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, just just a basic technique I would like to share, uh, and I would strongly recommend you give it a shot.
0: All right, uh, so that does it for this episode. And as we mentioned earlier, we are going to take a little podcast break. Uh, but during that break, we will still exist virtually in the stronger by Science Facebook group uh, and in our subreddit. And of course, we will still be sending out research review emails and stuff like that. So make sure you join uh, the Facebook group and the subreddit. I'm going to link both of those in the show notes. And uh, until we're back from our break, we'll be happy to stay in touch with everybody there. So uh, yeah, we'll be back eventually. But in the meantime, we'll see you on the internet. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.